Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 6. Um, before I get to my wonderful guest this week, I just want to remind listeners that um, part of what it is that we're doing here with Counterpunch Radio and why it is that we're providing this program weekly, um, Counterpunch, and this is my personal view, certainly, but I think that uh, the rest of the Counterpunch team would share it. Counterpunch is really one of the only places online or anywhere that you're going to find truly independent analysis that comes from a left perspective, but that isn't part of what I would call the controlled left. And I've said it before and I say it again, and it's part of the reason why I'm working with Counterpunch is because we want to present that alternative narrative. We want to challenge the established narratives, both that come from the right and those that come from the left. And so um, I, I urge you that if you're enjoying the podcast, if you're enjoying what Counterpunch offers, consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. Um, this is essential. This is an important way that you can support what Counterpunch does. Um, there's a print magazine. There's the online presence that we have. We now have Counterpunch Radio. And as a subscriber, you're supporting this project. You're not simply getting something out of it. You're providing a service to the Counterpunch team that works so hard um, on all of these various products. And I think that this is really critical because, again, there's not a ton of funding coming into a project like Counterpunch, so we are dependent upon you. So if you like what we're doing, you want to support us, please, um, by all means, subscribe to the magazine and find other ways to do that. Um, so with all of that kind of my spiel there out of the way, I want to turn over to my guest this week. Um, I have the pleasure of introducing Kathy Kelly onto the program. Um, Kathy is the co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Uh, their website is vcnv.org. Uh, she also works with the Afghan Peace Volunteers. Their website is ourjourneytosmile.com. And um, I wanted to bring Kathy on the program to talk about a number of different issues, including her very recent experiences. And um, I've spoken to Kathy before. She's really, in my mind, one of the premier voices for peace activism that we have in the United States and that we really are lucky to have on our side. And we're lucky to have Kathy on Counterpunch Radio. Kathy, thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, thank you, Eric. Thanks for the invitation to be on Counterpunch Radio. Um, so I want to begin with a... Um, well, let's begin with a topic that a lot of people, who, even people who maybe know you, might not know about, and that's your very, very recent experiences. And um, you just, just to give a little bit of background, you recently uh, had, let's call it an extended stay um, in a federal prison. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what landed you in prison, what it is, what your great crime was, and a little bit about your experiences while you were there. Well, thanks. Um, I was, along with a, a woman in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, very concerned about the Whiteman Air Force Base, which is located in Missouri. It's a big, huge uh, Air Force Base, and inside that base, pilots are flying weaponized drones over places like Afghanistan. And uh, I had recently returned from Afghanistan, was uh, increasingly aware of how many people just knowing that drones are hovering overhead or are living near a place where there is a drone attack in a panic will pick up their belongings, grab the children, and flee. 
And and that this has greatly escalated the numbers of people living in squalid refugee camps, even before a drone might target someone for assassination or fire a missile. And so I, I thought it was important to talk with the people at that base who are, who are in charge of the squadron of pilots that are flying drones. And it seems also that, you know, we should be going to the place where we have a grievance. The Constitution guarantees our right to assemble peaceably for redress of grievance. And after listening to so many people from Afghanistan express their grievances about war and terror and the ways in which so much resource and energy has been put toward taking care of the United States military in Afghanistan, well, mothers are weeping and saying, I think I'm losing my mind because I can't feed my child. Or people don't have water and people don't have jobs and people don't have decent housing. So it seemed like it was a good idea to talk with the military commanders who, you know, every day collect miles and miles and miles of footage from the drone cameras and they purport to be establishing patterns of life in Afghanistan. And those of us who go over there and come back and live with very ordinary people think, well, we can tell you something about patterns of life in Afghanistan. These are patterns of misery. And how in the world can we justify the expense that the United States is pouring into military budgets and even non-military budgets uh, that have gone to Afghanistan and, and, and not discernibly created improvements in the lives of people, even though the military would like us to think that women and children are better off because the U.S. has been there. So it's very typical in Afghanistan at a meal to have a loaf of bread and sit down on the floor and break bread together. Georgia and I bought a loaf of bread to the uh, perimeter of the base, and as soon as we stepped across the line and announced that we had a letter to deliver to the uh, commander of the base, we were swiftly arrested. Uh, and we were arrested on charges of criminal trespass to a military installation. I think the judge felt that his job when we went to trial was to protect the weapons and protect the soldiers from people like us. But we don't think that's true. We think his job is to, pro is to protect the constitutional rights of people like ourselves who um, should assemble, I think, at the place where we have a grievance and make our right to express ourselves known. Yeah, you know, that's really great um, what you're saying. And of course, I totally agree. While at the same time, there's a certain level of obviously, you're not being naive about it, but you're kind of reiterating this sort of idealistic perspective on how it is that we're supposed to think about power and the judicial system and all of these things as they operate in, you know, in the United States in, in 2015. Um, and of course, that's not really the way that it works. We have a vast military industrial complex. We have a judicial system and a legal system that is in, in, to a large extent, in cahoots with that military industrial complex, in cahoots with the establishment and the powers that be. And it is that system, isn't it, that, that really sent you to prison, that really sees you as a threat, or rather what you symbolize as a threat. So um, with all of that in mind, let's talk a little bit about your time there and um, what your experiences were. And I would just point people's attention to a really beautiful, powerful, moving essay that, uh, that you wrote, Kathy, entitled The Shift, which I came across a, a while back. And um, 
look, I mean, it's very, it's very moving stuff. So could you talk a little bit about that essay and what it is you were trying to get across, what you were hoping to convey about your experience um, in prison? And then also, if you could, a little bit about expectations, the image that we have in our mind's eye of prisons and what you saw and what you experienced. Well, I think many people think that prisons are a necessity, that we're all much more secure because there are so many prisons all across the United States. I was just stunned when I was in prison to realize that between 1990 and, sorry, between 1995 and 2010, the United States constructed a new prison every 10 days. I mean, we have a prison industrial complex right now that is encompassing so many different kinds of jobs and um, perks for people who benefit from the prison industrial complex. And it almost becomes impossible to imagine taking it apart, you know, like it's too flawed to fix and too big to fail. And I, and I think the same is true of the military industrial complex. And so these systems begin to take on a life of their own. And it's, it's almost as though the real life people become statistics that that matter not at all. I mean, in 2012, um, the people who were going before the courts as narcotics defendants had a choice, I suppose, of either pleading guilty or not guilty. But prosecutors wield so much power now that a prosecutor could say to a defendant, look, here are the statistics. If you don't take a plea bargain. If you decide to take your case to court, then you may get three times as long a sentence as you might get if you just decide to plead guilty and we'll settle this right here and now. And and the stats are this, that in, in 2012, um, of those who decided to take the plea bargain, the average length of sentence was five years and four months. For that group of people who said, no, I'm going to take this case to court, I'm going to go to trial, I'm going to go before a jury of my peers, the average length of sentencing was 16 years. So we have a system in which people get bullied and forced into accepting uh, pleas, not even getting a chance to try to prove whether they did what they were accused of doing or didn't do it, uh, because that's what makes the system more profitable for prosecutors who want to be able to turn over cases very quickly. And it uh, also fills the prisons. And as long as the uh, universities all across the United States graduate a new group of lawyers every year, how how are you going to keep all of those people involved in law employed? Well, I know there are many kinds of law that you can practice, but certainly having criminals, having prisons, having representation uh, of prisoners before all of these prosecutors keeps many people employed. You then have the prison architects and the prison wardens and the prison guards and all the many companies that either service the prisons or employ prison labor. So it's a huge, huge complex. And there I am in a maximum security prison in 1988 thinking, well, where are the bad sisters? And then I was in a minimum security facility in 2005 and still didn't meet any people that seemed threatening. This most recent time I was in Lexington Federal Prison again. And there's, there wasn't a person I met, either a guard or a prisoner, who would have, to me, posed 
a, a threat to anybody on the outside, but basically everybody's kind of locked up their their gifts, their abilities, their chances to be effective people within their families are all either broken apart or even in the cases of guards, I think kind of shriveled because of this terrible practice of having human beings act as human zookeepers toward other human beings, caging them up Mm -hmm. and isolating them away from the rest of society. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's, it's really, I think important what you just said, and this is probably going to be a running theme in our conversation here. Um, this question of the social impact of what it is that you're, you know, that, that you're, that you're, let's say highlighting or that you're involved in because there is a social cost and it is oftentimes not discussed when talking about these deeply politicized issues, whether it's issues of wars abroad or whether it's issues of, you know, the prison industrial complex at home and that social cost, the cost of a loved one who's away from their family, who's away from society, who even if they're lucky enough to come back within a reasonable amount of time might not be able to work, might not be able to reintegrate into society. I mean, all of these costs, they're somehow totally erased from the narrative when talking about so-called, you know, crime in our society or what have you. And so I think that that's really a critical issue. It's these hidden costs of wars, of the prisons and all of these things. And then what really does affect our security here in the United States? I mean, the great terror we're all facing is the terror of what we're doing to our own environment, the terror that we're going to run out of water, that global warming is going to render the planet uninhabitable, that the people who continue to take these precious fuels out from under the Earth's crust are going to make the planet uninhabitable for future generations. And also, you know, it's criminal to be shipping these very volatile fuels all across the country. There are many, many people at the top of major corporations in the United States who through their pollution or through what it is that they market and sell that should never have been made in the first place, really do pose a threat to the well-being of people. Now, I don't want to see those people go to prison. I don't want to see anybody go to prison. I sure would like to see that group rehabilitated who are manufacturing weapons, manufacturing nuclear bombs, manufacturing weapon systems, waging wars against civilians in other parts of the world. These are the people who pose threats to our well-being. And yet somehow we tolerate this terrible, broken, flawed, inhuman system that will lock someone away. I mean, the median sentence length for young men at the, well, for any prisoners, at the Pekin Federal Prison for Men, when I was uh, locked up there in the women's prison, the median sentence length for the men was 27 years. Wow. So we would watch the prison bus pull up in front of the men's prison. And you'd see young men, manacled, shackled, their ankles shackled together, stumbling off the bus, going into that prison, and they will be grandfathers before they come out. And when I was inside these uh, three floors that constitute the Lexington uh, Prison for Women, there were women who'd been down for 11 years and had five, six more years to go. And these were women who had been convicted on narcotics charges. They, um, By the time they are released, many of them will be homeless. They really will barely have families to go to because they've been away for such a long, long time. This is a merciless punishment. And it, it, it seems to me that uh, 
most people in the United States are encouraged to be distracted, to look the other way, not to care very much about the people who've been kind of um, disappeared into our prisons. And it actually reminds me a little bit of the people who uh, can't really be seen by the drones that are supposed to be keeping us safe. Uh, there, there's a kind of a, a, a presumption that, that, that somehow if we just act like big children and go along with these authorities, uh, our lives will be safer. But it, it's never been more untrue than it is right now. Yeah, that's right. You know, if we can't see them, then they're not there. There's a sense of psychological detachment that in many ways, I think, is a way, um, maybe on an unconscious level, that we as a society um, absolve ourselves of the sins that we're, that we're perpetrating, whether it's with drones in Afghanistan or whether it's to people in our own society. Well, I certainly hear that from my young friends in Afghanistan. Sometimes, uh, quite honestly, I've I, I've been taken aback when they've asked me, do people in the United States think that we're human beings like them? And I think, well, of course they do. What are you talking about? And then I, but then when I look at how our resources are actually being spent, you know, the United States in 2014 was spending $2.1 million per soldier per year in Afghanistan. So one soldier's year in the country would be worth $2.1 million. Now, at the same time, the United Nations is reporting that 519,647 children under age five are suffering from acute malnourishment, severe acute malnourishment. And what it would cost to get iodized salt into the diets of those children, which would at least give them a fighting chance against chronic brain deficiency if they do survive and get beyond the age of five with their malnutrition. The cost would come out to about five cents per child. And here we are in the United States, you know, reputably one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And where do we want to put our resources and our energy? Uh, spending $2.1 million to keep a soldier in Afghanistan, knowing that every single day veterans of combat from the U.S. military, commit suicide, mm -hmm. knowing that so many of the people who come back, they themselves come back to foreclosed homes or joblessness or broken relationships or uh, sometimes uh, they have health care needs that aren't being met very well once they get back. I mean, it's a, it's a system that doesn't make any sense because what the United States has accomplished in going over to Afghanistan, going over to Iraq, has unleashed forces that the United States certainly can't control and which have now contributed to exacerbated an ongoing war and violence in the region. Exactly right. Um, before we go to the break, um, I want to touch on this issue of civil disobedience because, I mean, it's something that figures really centrally in your own activism, in your personal history. And I wanted to just dig into that a little bit. Um, I mean, not to sound overly simplistic about it, but why? I mean, why is it that you do it? And I mean, why do you see civil disobedience as really this integral part of your activism and your worldview as I know that it is? Well, I do believe in taking adult responsibilities for our lives and in trying to align our lives 
with what our deepest values are. And I'm, I'm no exception. I'm, I don't believe in killing people. I think most people in the United States don't. They honestly don't believe in killing people. But the, the terrible reality is that United States funding, the tax monies that are taken from people's paychecks, pay for weapons that rip other people apart, tear bodies to shreds, destroy their homes, kill their children, cause displacement and bereavement. And so I certainly, I know I'm not going to go along with that. I haven't paid any taxes to the U.S. government since 1980, uh, but that's not enough. I, I think it's important to see the education potential in going before the courts and kind of using the court as a drama and, and saying to the United States legislative branch and executive branch and judicial branch, no, we won't cooperate with laws that are so unjust as to cause the killing and the destruction of civilians, especially children. So when I um, think about the 21st century military and how reliant it will be on robotized weapons and on drone warfare, then I want to make sure that I've at least tried my best to, as one individual, doing what you know my little drop in the ocean's worth of activism might entail, um, gone before the courts and said, I won't cooperate with this. Definitely. But I, I want to push back on these ideas a little bit. Not that I'm disagreeing with anything you're saying. Of course, I totally agree. But I wonder, and forgive me if I'm coming across as somewhat cynical, but do you think that civil disobedience has the same resonance today that it might have had, say, in the 1960s, uh, during the civil rights movement, during the anti-war movement? Or has something been lost since then in our society and in our uh, you know collective consciousness? Because somehow I feel like civil disobedience to a large extent is uh, almost invisible now, even within the progressive activist community? You know, I, I, that, that is an important question, and I, I don't want to dodge it, but I do also want to say that I think even if it doesn't have resonance, it's still important for people who are involved in peace activism to get inside the prisons. Yeah. Not as social workers, not as chaplains, not as paid civil servants, certainly not as guards, but to go in as a prisoner with your eight numbers and sit on the bedside next to somebody whose uh, reasons for weeping are so true and um, moving that you can try once you get outside the prison to help other people see what you've seen and heard inside. So so that in itself is, a, I think, a meaningful, purposeful, uh, if you will, uh, door to cross through with regard to um, civil disobedience. Um, you know, Sister Megan Rice at age 85 uh, was recently released from prison because... They said, you know, that sabotage charge has to be vacated at a higher court than the one that initially had sentenced her uh, on appeal. Judges said that that charge was wrong. And then very, very quickly, and because of the deftness of lawyers representing Sister Megan Rice, she was um, released, uh, given immediate release, along with her co-defendants, Greg um, Nar Obed Birchie and Michael Wally. Now, it's unusual to open up the New York Times and above the fold see a almost full half-page photo 
of somebody who's engaged in civil disobedience in a very sympathetic article written by William Broad, and that's what I saw last week in the New York Times. So is Megan accomplishing education in a, uh, a sphere that takes her well beyond the choir about nuclear weapons, about the value of civil disobedience, about adult responsibilities in our world? Oh, yes, I think unquestionably that that is something that was important for her to do. Um, I think of the many, many people who, um, within their communities, are at least accomplishing some education by crossing lines. As soon as I got out of prison, I went to California. I think four, four days after I was released, I was standing in front of Beale Air Force Base where drones are being operated and um, crossed the line with a group of uh, 16 people there. And I knew that at Hancock Field in Syracuse in New York, people are crossing the line. At Folk Field, people are serving much shorter sentences than um, I and some others have gotten. But but they're also going before the courts. Uh, this is happening in different spots all across the country. And um, I think had it not been for a group of people who crossed the line at Creech Air Force Base in 2009 and started to raise our concerns about drone warfare, uh, we might, uh, the, the, the movement might have been a little bit slower to, um, to respond to this kind of 21st century military. So it's not the only game in town, for sure. And I think people need to be writing and speaking and educating and uh, and lobbying and trying to accomplish legislative change. But I think there is a role for peace activists um, to continue to say, I'm not going to let inconvenience get in the way of acting in accord with deep beliefs. So I would hold the line there. It's not convenient to go to prison. It's not convenient to go to jail. It's not terribly convenient to be caught up in the court proceedings. But we shouldn't let inconvenience get in the way of acting in accord with what we really believe. Because otherwise, we'll get distracted. We'll get pulled into, you know, all kinds of sports and entertainment um, uh, directions, and we might lose touch with our most rooted and grounded beliefs. I think that's very well said. Um, let's take a break. On the other side of the break, I want to continue our conversation, and I want to break down a little bit more about your experiences in Afghanistan and around the world and um, why that's so important. So um, stay with us on the other side of the break, continuing the conversation with Kathy Kelly. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. Don't feel like talking to myself Empty bottles sitting on the shelf Rain beating down on the roof like a lonely drum And that's a jail you can't escape from Talk about you, talk about me Talk about lonesome Enough for you, enough for me and then some All those loves that you took for granted Like trees that were never planted Everywhere is where you've been And nowhere is the place 
talk about me Talk about lonesome Enough for you Enough for me And then some Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Kathy Kelly, and um, you know we've talked a lot about um, you know some of these issues involving you know civil disobedience and what really kind of characterizes your activism. But I want to get into the, the 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 real experiences that you have had on the ground in some of the most um, uh, critical war zones, ground zero, if you will, of U.S. Uh, imperialism around the world. I mean, you've been to Gaza, you've been to Iraq, you've been to Afghanistan many times. And I, I think that these things are important. And I think that I'm sure you've shared it many, many times before, but I think it's really critical to continue sharing that. And I want to I wanna just ask you, I know you're going back to Afghanistan in a matter of days from now. And I just want to know very simply what keeps drawing you back there? I mean, why are you continuing to go to these places? Why do you keep going to Afghanistan? What's there for you? And what's there for us? One of my best mentors in life is an Australian, uh, Neville Watson. He's getting on in years now, but um, he was part of a group that was called the Gulf Peace Team. And I first met him in 1991. And then again, um, during the shock and awe bombing, he came and joined our team. And Neville would always say, we won't let war sever relationships between ourselves and other people. Well, in Afghanistan right now, a group of teenagers um, who are older teens now have, for the past six years, been welcoming internationals to come and join them and learn from them as they've tried their best to set aside desires for revenge or retaliation, even though they themselves have been displaced by the war, they've been uh, bereaved, some of them have watched family members killed before their eyes, some are orphans, some have seen their parents killed by the Taliban. Um, they they don't have uh, an easy life at all, but they haven't wanted to give in to their, their own traumas and seek revenge, seek retaliation, or... Um, give in to depression, really. Uh, so they're very impressive to me. I, I learn a lot from being with them. And I know that, you know, you can't always control, are you going to be depressed or are you not going to be depressed? But what I find them repeatedly doing is looking out for people that are worse off than they are themselves and trying to reach out a hand to help people who might otherwise not survive, for instance, a harsh winter. They've been every year organizing a, a project wherein they... Uh, create these big, heavy blankets uh, with the help of seamstresses and then distribute those free of charge to people who are very, very poor. They um, most recently have started a school for the kids who are working as street laborers, and um, they've been uh, giving these kids a chance to become literate, learn their alphabet, and maybe have some possibility of, of getting beyond the dehumanizing and terrible work of being out on the streets trying to sell things or polished shoes 
or you know avoid being pulled into drug smuggling gangs and other kinds of activity when they're older. So anyway, it's it's the, I'm always very excited and pleased to go back over to Afghanistan and and be with this group. I think um, by now we've probably got about a hundred U.S. people who've at one time or another gone and stayed with them and. Uh, they, all of the people who've been involved have then, I think, upon return to the United States, been able to say, well, this is what we experienced in Afghanistan, living among very ordinary people. And it doesn't always square with what the United States has been presenting in terms of the United States being responsible for bringing a better life about uh, or bringing more rights into the lives of women and girls in Afghanistan. So I think it's important both to offer witness and also to um, to learn from people who are bearing the brunt of the wars that we're responsible for. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think that that's really, um, you know, it's a really powerful, um, let's let's call it a perspective that, that I think people need to hear about. But there's another angle to this that I want to take because, you know, I don't think that any discussion of U.S. imperial policies and U.S. wars is really complete without examining some of, just as we mentioned in the first part of our conversation, some of the hidden costs of the war. You know, um, as a political analyst, as someone who writes about wars and stuff all the time, I'm I, I get caught up, as many of us do, and things like body counts and the politics of these issues and things like that. And one thing that is quite often not discussed is really a lot of these hidden costs. For instance, it's just it occurs to me as we're sitting here talking about it that it's now 2015 and uh, Afghanistan has been under uh, U.S. war, U.S. occupation for almost a decade and a half. I mean, you're talking about literally an entire generation of young people in Afghanistan who have never known anything but the U.S. war and the U.S. occupation. So um, let's talk a little bit about these hidden costs, uh, psychological costs, cultural and social costs of this war and this this continuing war. And make no mistake about it, the war, even though it's not so much in the headlines, is still very much ongoing. So talk about those hidden costs. And if you could even, and I don't even know whether you had direct experience with this or not, but one of those real hidden costs, the, the, exor- the extreme rise of drug abuse in Afghanistan and what that has done to a society that at one time was nowhere on the poppy cultivation map and is now the the world leader by far. So talk about some of those issues that you've experienced. Well, my young friends are constantly frustrated by the levels of corruption that exist. I mean, at this point, almost any direction you turn in would lead you toward an encounter with a corrupt system. Uh, teachers are... Uh, very vulnerable to passing students along if they are given a, a sum of money. Uh, the, the seats that are available in the universities are sometimes uh, more or less all bought up before the tests are even taken. Uh, people don't have a very easy time finding a job, and if they do, sometimes that's because somebody paid somebody to say, okay, this person gets hired instead of this person. Um, the the decline in in a middle class in Afghanistan, as is was the case in Iraq, has has had many terrible ramifications. Uh, because when you 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 can't 
look look toward a, a an Afghan medical care system or an Afghan education system or an Afghan um, governing system, then people become very, very dependent on outsiders to say, well, we'll bring in your health care, we'll bring in the education. And then they're you know, just as dependent on those outsiders who might say, well, now we're not going to do it any longer. We're, gonna, we're going to leave and then you're not going to have any health care system. And uh, at this point, the education system is, is just uh, so, um, what would I say, just, just not existent in terms of anything meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, 17.5% of girls above the age of 15 are, are literate. And of the whole population, 37% of the population are literate. Uh, it, it becomes um, very, very difficult for people to to see any kind of a future. And so given that the agricultural uh, system isn't working, the once upon a time Afghanistan was a country that exported mulberries and apricots and pistachios. They had flocks crisscrossing the fields, they had irrigation systems all through the country, and, and this was a, a functioning agricultural economic system. But now the hillsides are denuded, the trees have been cut down often because people are desperate for fuel, but also because various warring countries cut down the orchard so they could see better to shoot at people. Um, the irrigation systems are all clogged up, the uh, um, flocks would have to be replenished in order to bring that aspect of agriculture back to life again. And so there there really aren't jobs, and those that are able to plant a fairly drought-resistant crop and get some help, although from a criminal grouping, are the ones who plant poppy. And so now Afghanistan is exporting 80 to 90% of the world's opium. Well, children can't eat opium. And so you go through the the statistics that show how many children are suffering from severe acute malnourishment and brain deficiencies that are concurrent with that. So I think um, it, it is a an extremely harsh place in which to be born. The United Nations has said it's one of the worst places in the world into which a child can be born. And, you know, meanwhile, the United States, I think, has been looking at Afghanistan as a place in which it might be in the future important to do business in terms of being able to control the pricing and the flow of resources that China might want mm-hmm. or Russia might want. Yes. And so that's why I think the United States has been prolonging uh, the U- U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. I think the United States wants to be able to say to China and to Russia, uh, we're in a Cold War right now and that could become something that we would provoke into uh, more of a a militarized battle between superpowers. But for the time being, we don't want you to be able to undermine us economically by having control over extraction of resources or the flow of resources, the pricing of those resources. And and these are are questions that have nothing to do with the well-being of people in Afghanistan. 
Uh, that's exactly right. And I mean, we don't have too much time to get into all of the geopolitical and economic issues related to this. But, um, you know, I mean, I think the United States is also tremendously concerned about collaboration between non-Western powers in Afghanistan. You have, you know, uh, India and Iran looking to make deals for iron ore extraction and working together to uh, have a, some kind of an economic future in Afghanistan with the U.S. out of the picture. So I think there's exactly as you said, I mean, the U.S. has many different reasons for wanting to prolong that conflict and to, to, to maintain their occupation. But, you know, I want to return to this issue um, of, of the young people in Afghanistan, if I could, because, you know, I read somewhere, I mean, the the levels of um, whether whether um, uh, identified or not identified post-traumatic stress disorder are unbelievably high. Um, a lot of the young people have things like chronic nightmares and all kinds of mental uh, and psychological issues because of this constant war that they've been born into that they really know nothing else. And I just, I wonder... Uh, what is your experience with that? And I mean, what is the future of Afghan uh, of the Afghan people as a people if their if their young generation is in many ways so damaged? Well, I certainly see myself when I'm with the young women's community as as someone who. So, I mean, you know, we joke, you know, what are you going to Afghanistan for? What do you do? Well, we do the dishes, <laughs> but I. I do have to say that it's it's a it's a regular occurrence that a young woman will be in my arms sobbing, mm-hmm. or an older woman. Uh, the 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 women's situations are so ex, ex, excruciatingly difficult. You know, I I know a young woman who was just um, in the prime of her life and very very excited about what she might be able to do she she loves to read and she loves to study but her family is desperately poor and i know this i've been with them i've seen their poverty and in order to be able to dig their way out of poverty they need to buy and sell their daughters basically and so this young woman suddenly finds herself kind of sold into a marriage with somebody who uh is part of a family that beats her and they're 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 next to never going to let her out of the house, much less be able to pursue her dreams. Uh, at the end of every month, she's able to come over and visit the community that I'm part of because she embroiders scarves that we then take and sell to people here in the United States to help raise some money for the, the street kids' school. And each of these girls that embroiders the scarves gets paid a small amount. So that's the only way I'm able to see her. And, of course, she sobs and sobs. And I've sometimes been with the young men in their home and you know at one o'clock in the morning one of them will just wake up screaming and and this was especially when they were younger boys kind of a typical reaction because they'd experienced so much trauma abdul high when he was two years old was frozen uh, they they had to hold his body over an open flame to thaw him out uh, he remembers being with his mother when they were on the run and displaced and finally managed to get to a place where they could sit down, but there wasn't enough bread to go around. And he remembers his mother begging, please give my children some bread, but there wasn't enough. Um, repeatedly, uh, mothers come and they tell us that they feel like they're losing their mind and you ask why, and it's because they can't feed their children and they're you know thrown back on the memories of their days as younger mothers when they you know would be running from 
different warring groups. Well, this this has been a reality for every single family in the country. And it's utterly remarkable to me that in spite of what I can describe as everyday occurrences of trauma and flashbacks to trauma, the young people I know are some of the finest young people you could ever meet in the world, and they're trying like crazy. They're trying so hard to reach out to people who are needier and say, we'll form a community. We'll form a community of need, and if we get our hands on some resources, we'll share them with you, and let's see if we can't build a better world. And if I then start to say, well, of course, you know, the United States and other countries that have been making war inside your country should be paying reparations, they tell me, Kathy, don't make people in your country feel guilty. Probably people would rather build than destroy, don't you think? <laughs> I, I think, I hope so. I hope so too. Although, uh, well, I, I'm I'm going to leave it there. Other than to say that I think that um, reparations are, are are the least of what the United States is responsible for providing. But um, I wanna I wanna ask you something else that I think is is really critical. And again, I mean, part of the reason why I want to is because you have so much experience with Afghanistan, and and in many ways, Afghanistan is almost like the quintessential, let's call it, 21st century war in the sense that it's in many ways um, the focal point of this drone war. And I just, I wonder how do drones change the nature of war in your perspective? I mean, in from from the way that I'm looking at it, I think that to a large extent in the American uh, public consciousness, drones have somehow sanitized war. I mean, they've they've almost made it like something that we can keep entirely at arm's length, that we don't have to get our hands dirty with war when it's being done by drones. So um, talk a little bit about that. And does does drone warfare make the reality of war unreal to those who are perpetrating it? Well, I think it's important to recognize that the Air Force can't find uh, numbers to fill all of the slots that they have open for drone piloting. The people don't want to do that job. And I think it's perhaps helpful to compare a drone pilot to a United, Air Force, a United States Air Force pilot who might have been a bomber pilot but would fly over the terrain pull the lever, drop the bomb, and keep going. Well, if you're staring at a screen that's 18 inches away from you and you get the order impact and you pull the lever and fire a Hellfire missile at a target, you don't keep going. You keep hovering. And so you're seeing the body parts go flying. You perhaps are seeing children who were with the person who is intended as the target, and those children's bodies are blown apart. And then perhaps some people come as a rescue team, as a kind of emergency medical technician's team, and maybe then you're given the orders to hit those people as well. Or maybe there are people who come because they want to recover the bodies for funerary purposes, and maybe you're then told you have to hit those people as well. And when you look up at the clock and see, oh, oh, well, it's 3 o'clock, now my shift is over. The adrenaline might have been so high and you'd be caught up in this horrible war zone and all of the anxiety and the um, sort of collective uh, angst about, well, are we hitting targets that 
our combatants or might we be hitting civilians and is this the right time to do it? And then all of a sudden you leave and you're on a highway going maybe to a soccer field to pick your children up and get accustomed to your family life. Well, this is a great deal of cognitive dissonance. And so it's a strange, strange traumatic reality for those who are working as drone pilots. And many have said that they don't feel good about the uh, commendations they get, that they sometimes feel like monsters uh, because they think about all the numbers of people that they've killed. And as one drone pilot said, I didn't know anything about this guy I just killed, except that he was a good father, because I could see when he'd go in the door, his children would run up to him. So the drones are certainly invasive. Um, The people collecting the footage are spying on other people, um, interfering in their lives. And the people at the other end of it are, understandably, I think, enraged. Uh, General McChrystal himself had said that the arrogance of the drone warfare coupled with the Joint Special Operations Commandos and Um, I I do want to say something about them, that this actually lowers security for people in the United States because it causes such rage on the part of the people who can't escape, who've got nowhere to turn and nowhere to hide. And the deal with the night raids that the Joint Special Operations Commandos do is that they may get information from the drone footage, and then they go in, or maybe they call in Kiowa helicopters, and in the middle of the night when people are sound asleep, they'll maybe first launch a grenade over a courtyard or they'll kick in a door, they'll go in with the kinds of lights that film crews use when they want to make night look like day while they're filming a movie, and all of a sudden a house is turned into total chaos. Uh, The householders, the males are hogtied and thrown in the back of pickup trucks. The women are locked into a room. Soldiers are very well trained to go ransacking through the home and turning over every drawer and breaking glasses and dishes and ripping open mattresses and throwing the contents of closets in the middle of the room. And people are terrified. And if somebody strikes back in any fashion, they immediately uh, could be killed with the soldiers having orders, shoot to kill if anyone threatens you. Well, can we imagine if this was happening in our homes? I mean, absolutely. You know, um, not to get not to get too far off the subject, but um, a lot of the police violence and the police murders that happen in 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 a lot of the major cities in the U.S. I think some of the people in those communities have at least some idea of what that's like to live in in, in those conditions. Um, well, that's not getting off the subject at yeah, all. I think yeah, that's precisely yeah. spot it, on that it, the same kind of targeted extrajudicial killing with no charges, no interrogation, no yeah. questioning has been leveled at. People just because their skin is black and they might be running in an opposite direction of a policeman. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I I, I just want to touch a little bit on, I guess, clarify what I mean when I say sanitizing. I also mean from the perspective of the U.S. public, because we don't have to, you know, it's not like Vietnam, for example. Mm -hmm. We don't have those body bags coming home. We don't have, you know, pilots who are shot down or anything like that when you're talking about drone warfare. So because there's there's not a human price to pay from the perspective of American lives, somehow, at least in my mind, 
mind, it seems like Americans, to a large extent, are more willing to accept it. And I think that that's one of the real dangers about this drone warfare and the drone warfare program and the targeted assassinations is because there's no human cost from the U.S. side, somehow it's more acceptable. And I think it makes it much easier for the United States to market the wars and basically sell them to the U.S. public because, as you say, people aren't seeing the images. And also the other ingredient, if the war profiteers and the public relations group and think tanks trying to more or less sell the next war to the U.S. public or justify the present one can give people a sense that somehow the United States has a humanitarian purpose yes. in being in this war zone that, well, we went in there and we got rid of Saddam Hussein and wasn't that better for the Iraqis? Or we protected the women and children from the Taliban and shouldn't they be thankful? Or we went in there and made things safer for people. Well, th th this is especially pernicious because uh, the manipulation of the truth is um, so far away from what people on the ground would tell people in the United States if they had a chance. But I think in the military-industrial-media congressional complex, the media has by and large been very, very subservient. Um, people don't want to lose their jobs if they've got big anchor positions and their um, you know, correspondents in foreign countries, and they know what the editors will tolerate. And so they sometimes go along with these images that would make it seem as though somehow the United States military is improving either the education or the literacy or the human rights of people in places like Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say, you know, the, the, the selling of war under the auspices of humanitarianism is one of the most insidious things that the U.S. has done. And I, to a large extent, this is something that um, many of the um, so-called progressives have fallen for time and time again. I mean, you know, I was chastised up and down and, and, and demonized and vilified by a lot of people who I stood with in opposition to the Iraq war when I dared to say that uh, we had absolutely no reason to be toppling Gaddafi in Libya, no reason to be waging a war on Libya, no reason to be destabilizing the Assad government in Syria, that somehow in, in when a liberal democratic president and a liberal democratic uh, government is in, is in place, all of a sudden wars are acceptable because they're sold under this humanitarian cover. And I think that that is something that absolutely has to be opposed and you have to oppose those people who sell it, especially to those who believe themselves to be progressives. And I would also add just um, the fact that, you know, not only should we look at the root causes that, that, that lead to this sort of uh, extremist or, you know, jihadist ideologies and jihadi groups and whatever, but also the politics behind all of this. I mean, the, the, the strategic decisions that are made by our so-called elected officials to support one group in order to achieve a certain objective in Syria, to support Saudi-based or, you know, Tajik-based or, you know, whatever um, terror elements so that we can 
can get rid of Assad, replace one with another, or however they however they rationalize these things. All of these, I think, are outgrowths of an imperial policy and imperial uh, agenda that it just as you said, I mean, it has all of these outgrowths that not only are they pernicious and, and dangerous, but they really they perpetuate these same cycles of violence and war and bloodshed. And I, I just, you know, I mean, there's we could probably do a whole show just on that issue alone. But we're almost out of time, Kathy. And I, I got to ask you one more question. And this one is burning in my mind. So I just want to get your quick take on this. You know, as somebody who's been active in anti-war, uh, in the anti-war movement, as long as I've been, you know, politically active, um, it always strikes me that, quite frankly, in 2015, there is very little of an anti-war movement to speak of. And um, that's not only true for the U.S., but that's true in the West generally. Um, what would you say to people who are genuinely interested in anti-war activism and an anti-war peace position, considering the dire straits that the anti-war movement is in? I mean, there's a lot of young people now who didn't come up through, you know, the Iraq war, or the Afghan war, or whatever, who might not have an understanding of the fact that there at least was an anti-war movement at that time. So those people who are at a loss for what to do, what would you say to them about the anti-war position these days? I like the words that Kurt Vonnegut used. Um, they were very simple. He said, get yourself a gang. It is true that uh, the, we're, we're nowhere near being commensurate to the the need for numbers of people, for uh, knitting together the various groups that do exist, for feeling enough heft to be able to pose a significant challenge to the war makers. But I would say um, paralysis or um, being kind of mesmerized and staring at uh, the realities without taking action, that, that's, um, I think, a a very sad and dismal Response, And I think people will feel so much better about themselves and about the world around them when they find themselves linked up to kindred spirits and doing their best to take actions. And, you know, if you wait till you're perfect, you'll wait a very long time. If you're not sure where to find people, go to the poorest neighborhood in your town or in your city. You'll find people. You'll find people that are putting out soup kitchen meals or staffing overnight shelters or in some way trying to uh, be involved in the the activities that require some heart and require some care. And it's almost always, I find, within those groupings of people that you find the roots of a reliable and trustworthy resistance to warfare. And then I think, um, you know, we may not, ours may not be to reap the harvest, ours might be to plant the seeds, but do we want to say that we're going to be like a train going over the abyss and we're going to be in the observation deck saying, oh, we like the view and don't stop the train? Of course not. So I think, you know, to slow down, think about what our options are and where we're going and how fortunate we are, how incredibly fortunate we are to be able to say, let's find kindred spirits and knit together, build together groups of people who won't live their lives in alignment with menacing war makers who are going to say, no, that's not me. I'm going to live my life in accord with what I really do believe. 
Very well said. Very well said. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, all right, so we're we're out of time. But Kathy, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Um, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and listeners. Again, you you, you need to be following Kathy. Um, again, she's the co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Go to their website vcnv.org. Kathy's also uh, working with the Afghan Peace Volunteers. Their website again is ourjourneytosmile.com. That's ourjourneytosmile.com. Kathy, we, we, we wish you all the best on your journey to Afghanistan and your continued activities. And of course, we thank you so much for not only everything that you do, but for sharing your time with us today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Eric. I'll be sure and tell friends in Afghanistan about Counterpunch Radio. They'll listen. (laughs) Great. Thank you. And listeners, again, I want to thank you so much for tuning in another week. And we'll be back next week with another uh, exciting episode, I'm hoping. And I'm not going to reveal it yet, but I'm hoping we're going to have a big guest. We're going to talk geopolitics, strategy, all kinds of things going on in the game of empire right now. So do tune in for that next week. Thanks so much for listening to Counterpunch Radio again, and we'll speak to you real soon.